Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Ineash Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Second Half of Chapter 39, Pretending to be Wise, Part 1 Toot, beep, thud. How can you not believe it? said the headmaster, looking completely flabbergasted. Harry, you're a wizard! You've seen ghosts! Ghosts, Harry said, his voice flat. You mean those things like portraits, stored memories and behaviors with no awareness or life, accidentally impressed into the surrounding material by the burst of magic that accompanies the violent death of a wizard. I've heard that theory, said the headmaster, his voice growing sharp. Repeated by wizards who mistake cynicism for wisdom, who think that to look down upon others is to elevate themselves. It is one of the silliest ideas I have heard in a hundred and ten years. Yes, ghosts do not learn or grow, because this is not where they belong. Souls are meant to move on. There is no life remaining for them here. And if not ghosts, then what of the veil? What of the resurrection stone? All right, Harry said, trying to keep his voice calm. I'll hear out your evidence, because that's what a scientist does. But first, Headmaster, let me tell you a little story. Harry's voice was trembling. You know, when I got here, when I got off the train from King's Cross, I don't mean yesterday, but back in September, when I got off the train then, Headmaster, I'd never seen a ghost. I wasn't expecting ghosts. So when I saw them, Headmaster, I did something really dumb. I jumped to conclusions. I... I thought there was an afterlife. I thought no one had ever really died. I thought that everyone the human species had ever lost was really fine after all. I thought that wizards could talk to people who'd passed on, that it just took the right spell to summon them, and that wizards could do that. I thought I could meet my parents who died for me and tell them that I'd heard about their sacrifice, and that I'd begun to call them my mother and father. Harry, whispered Dumbledore. Water glittered in the old wizard's eyes. He took a step closer across the office. And then, spat Harry, the fury coming fully into his voice, the cold rage at the universe for being like that, and at himself for being so stupid. I asked Hermione, and she said that they were just after-images, burned into the stone of the castle by the death of a wizard, like the silhouettes left on the walls of Hiroshima. And I should have known. I should have known without even having to ask. I shouldn't have believed it even for all of 30 seconds. Because if people had souls, there wouldn't be any such thing as brain damage. If your soul could go on speaking after your whole brain was gone, how could damage to the left cerebral hemisphere take away your ability to talk? And Professor McGonagall, when she told me about how my parents had died, she didn't act like they'd gone away on a long trip to another country, like they'd emigrated to Australia back in the days of sailing ships, which is the way people would act if they actually knew that death was just going somewhere else, if they had hard evidence for an afterlife, instead of making stuff up to console themselves. It would change everything. It wouldn't matter that everyone had lost someone in the war. It would be a little sad, but not horrible. 
and I'd already seen that people in the wizarding world didn't act like that. So I should have known better. And that was when I knew that my parents were really dead and gone. Forever and ever. And there wasn't anything left of them. And that I'd never get a chance to meet them. And... And... And the other children thought I was crying because I was scared of ghosts. The old wizard's face was horrified. He opened his mouth to speak. So, tell me, headmaster. Tell me about the evidence. But don't you dare exaggerate a single tiny bit of it. Because if you give me false hope again, and I found out later that you lied or stretched things just a little, I won't ever forgive you for it. What's the veil? Harry reached up and wiped at his cheeks while the glass things of the office stopped vibrating from his last shriek. The veil, said the old wizard with only a slight tremble in his voice, is a great stone archway kept in the Department of Mysteries, a gateway to the land of the dead. And how does anyone know that, said Harry. Don't tell me what you believe. Tell me what you've seen. The physical manifestation of the barrier between worlds was a great stone archway, old and tall and coming to a sharp point, with a tattered black veil like the surface of a pool of water stretched between the stones, rippling, always, from the constant and one-way passage of the souls. If you stood by the veil, you could hear the voices of the dead calling, always calling in whispers barely on the wrong side of comprehension, growing louder and more numerous if you stayed and tried to hear as they tried to communicate. And if you listened too long, you would go to meet them, and in the moment you touched the veil, you would be sucked through and never be heard from again. That doesn't even sound like an interesting fraud, Harry said, his voice calmer now that there was nothing there to make him hope, or make him angry for having hopes dashed. Someone built a stone archway, made a little black rippling surface between it that vanished anything it touched, and enchanted it to whisper to people and hypnotize them. Harry, the headmaster said, starting to look rather worried. I can tell you the truth, but if you refuse to hear it... Also not interesting. What's the resurrection stone? I would not tell you, the headmaster said slowly, save that I fear what this disbelief may do to you. So listen then, Harry. Please listen. The Resurrection Stone was one of the three legendary Deathly Hallows, kin to Harry's cloak. The Resurrection Stone could call souls back from the dead, bring them back into the world of the living, though not as they were. Cadmus Peverell used the stone to call back his lost beloved from the dead, but her heart stayed with the dead and not in the world of the living. And in time, it drove him mad, and he killed himself to be truly with her once more. In all politeness, Harry raised his hand. Yes? The headmaster said reluctantly. The obvious test to see if the resurrection stone is really calling back the dead, or just projecting an image from the user's mind, is to ask a question whose answer you don't know, but the dead person would, and that can be definitely verified in this world. For example, call back... Then Harry paused, because this time he'd managed to think it through one step ahead of his tongue fast enough to not say the first name and test that had sprung to his mind. Your dead wife, and ask her where she left her lost earring, or something like that. Did anyone do any tests like that? The resurrection stone has been lost for centuries, Harry. Harry shrugged. Well, I'm a scientist, and I'm always willing to be convinced. 
If you really believe the Resurrection Stone calls back the dead, then you must believe a test like that will succeed, right? So do you know anything about where to find the Resurrection Stone? I got one Deathly Hallow already, under highly mysterious circumstances. And, well, we both know how the rhythm of the world works on that sort of thing. Dumbledore stared at Harry. Harry gazed equably back at the Headmaster. The Headmaster passed a hand across his forehead and muttered, This is madness. Somehow, Harry managed to stop himself from laughing. And Dumbledore told Harry to draw forth the Cloak of Invisibility from his pouch. At the Headmaster's direction, Harry stared at the inside and back of the hood until he saw it. Faintly drawn against the silvery mesh in faded scarlet like dried blood, the symbol of the Deathly Hallows. A triangle with a circle drawn inside and a line dividing them both. Thank you, Harry said politely. I shall be sure to keep an eye out for a stone so marked. Do you have any other evidence? Dumbledore appeared to be fighting a struggle within himself. Harry, the old wizard said, his voice rising. This is a dangerous road you are walking. I am not sure I do the right thing by saying this, but I must wrench you from this way. Harry, how could Voldemort have survived the death of his body if he did not have a soul? And that was when Harry realized that there was exactly one person who'd originally told Professor McGonagall that the Dark Lord was still alive in the first place. And it was the crazy headmaster of their madhouse of a school who thought the world ran on cliches. Good question, Harry said after some internal debate on how to proceed. Maybe he found some way of duplicating the power of the Resurrection Stone, only he loaded it in advance with a complete copy of his brain state. Or something like that. Harry was suddenly far from sure that he was trying to come up with an explanation for something that had actually happened. Actually, can you just go ahead and tell me everything you know about how the Dark Lord survived and what it might take to kill him? If he even still exists is more than Quibbler headlines. You are not fooling me, Harry, said the old wizard, his face looking ancient now and lined by more than years. I know why you are truly asking that question. No, I do not read your mind. I do not have to. Your hesitation gives you away. You seek the secret of the Dark Lord's immortality in order to use it for yourself. Wrong! I want the secret of the Dark Lord's immortality in order to use it for everyone. Tick. Crackle. Fizzed. Albus Percival Wolfric Brian Dumbledore just stood there and stared at Harry with his mouth gaping open dumbly. Harry awarded himself a tally mark for Monday, since he'd managed to blow someone's mind completely before the day was over. And in case it wasn't clear, said Harry, by everyone, I mean all muggles too, not just all wizards. No, said the old wizard, shaking his head. His voice rose. No, no, no! This is insanity! Bwahaha! said Harry. The old wizard's face was tight with anger and worry. Voldemort stole the book from which he gleaned his secret. It was not there when I went looking for it. But this much I know, and this much I will tell you. His immortality was born of a ritual terrible and dark, blacker than pitchest black. And it was Myrtle, sweet, poor Myrtle, who died for it. 
His immortality took sacrifice. It took murder. Well, obviously I'm not going to popularize a method of immortality that requires killing people. That would defeat the entire point. There was a startled pause. Slowly, the old wizard's face relaxed out of its anger, though the worry was still there. You would use no ritual requiring human sacrifice? I don't know what you take me for, headmaster, Harry said coldly, his own anger rising. But let's not forget that I'm the one who wants people to live, the one who wants to save everyone. You're the one who thinks death is awesome and everyone ought to die. I am at a loss, Harry, said the old wizard. His feet once more began trudging across his strange office. I know not what to say. He picked up a crystal ball that seemed to hold a hand in flames, looked into it with a sad expression. Only that I am greatly misunderstood by you. I don't want everyone to die, Harry. You just don't want anyone to be immortal, Harry said with considerable irony. It seemed that elementary logical tautologies were beyond the reasoning abilities of the world's most powerful wizard. The old wizard nodded. I am less afraid than I was, but still greatly worried for you, Harry. His hand, a little wizened by time, but still strong, placed the crystal ball firmly back into its stand. For the fear of death is a bitter thing, an illness of the soul by which people are twisted and warped. Voldemort is not the only dark wizard to go down that bleak road, though I fear he has taken it further than any before him. And you think you're not afraid of death? Harry said, not even trying to mask the incredulity in his voice. The old wizard's face was peaceful. I am not perfect, Harry, but I think I have accepted my death as part of myself. Uh-huh, Harry said. See, there's this little thing called cognitive dissonance, or in plainer English, sour grapes. If people were hit on the head with truncheons once a month and no one could do anything about it, pretty soon there'd be all sorts of philosophers pretending to be wise, as you put it, who found all sorts of amazing benefits to being hit on the head with a truncheon once a month. Like it makes you tougher, or it makes you happier on the days when you're not getting hit with a truncheon. But if you went up to someone who wasn't getting hit, and you asked them if they wanted to start in exchange for those amazing benefits, they'd say no. And if you didn't have to die, if you came from somewhere that no one had ever even heard of death, and I suggested to you that it would be an amazing, wonderful, great idea for people to get wrinkled and old and eventually cease to exist, why, you'd have me hauled right off to a lunatic asylum. So why would anyone possibly think any thought so silly as that death is a good thing? Because you're afraid of it. Because you don't really want to die, and that thought hurts so much inside you that you have to rationalize it away, do something to numb the pain, so you won't have to think about it. No, Harry, the old wizard said. His face was gentle. His hand trailed through a lighted pool of water that made small musical chimes as his fingers stirred it. Though I can understand how you must think so. Do you want to understand the dark wizard? Harry said, his voice now hard and grim. Then look within that part of yourself that flees not from death, but from the fear of death. 
that finds that fear so unbearable that it will embrace death as a friend and cozen up to it. Try to become one with the night so that it can think itself master of the abyss. You have taken the most terrible of all evils and called it good! With only a slight twist, that same part of yourself would murder innocence and call it friendship. If you can call death better than life, then you can twist your moral compass to point anywhere. I think, said Dumbledore, shaking water droplets from his hand to the sound of tiny tinkling bells, that you understand dark wizards very well, without yet being one yourself. It was said in perfect seriousness, but without accusation. But your comprehension of me, I fear, is sorely lacking. The old wizard was smiling now, and there was a gentle laughter in his voice. Harry was trying not to go any colder than he already was. From somewhere, there was pouring into his mind a blazing fury of resentment, at Dumbledore's condescension, and all the laughter that wise old fools had ever used in place of arguments. Funny thing, you know, I thought Draco Malfoy was going to be this impossible to talk to. And instead, in his childish innocence, he was a hundred times stronger than you. A look of puzzlement crossed the old wizard's face. What do you mean? I mean that Draco actually took his own beliefs seriously and processed my words instead of throwing them out the window by smiling with gentle superiority. You're so old and wise, you can't even notice anything I'm saying. Not understand, notice! I have listened to you, Harry, said Dumbledore, looking more solemn now. But to listen is not always to agree. Disagreements aside, what is it that you think I do not comprehend? That if you really believed in an afterlife, you'd go down to St. Mungo's and kill Neville's parents, Alice and Frank Longbottom, so they could go on to their next great adventure instead of letting them linger here in their damaged state. Harry barely, barely kept himself from saying it out loud. All right, I'll answer your original question then. You asked why dark wizards are afraid of death. Pretend, headmaster, that you really believed in souls. Pretend that anyone could verify the existence of souls at any time. Pretend that nobody cried at funerals because they knew their loved ones were still alive. Now can you imagine destroying a soul? Ripping it to shreds so that nothing remains to go on to its next great adventure. Can you imagine what a terrible thing that would be? The worst crime that has ever been committed in the history of the universe, which you would do anything to prevent from happening even once. Because that's what death really is. The annihilation of a soul. The old wizard was staring at him, a sad look in his eyes. I suppose I do understand now. Oh? Understand what? Voldemort. I understand him now at last. Because to believe that the world is truly like that, you must believe there is no justice in it, that it is woven of darkness at its core. I asked you why he became a monster, and you could give no reason. And if I could ask him, I suppose his answer would be, why not? They stood there, gazing into each other's eyes the old wizard in his robes, and the young boy with the lightning bolt scar on his forehead. Tell me, Harry, will you become a monster? No, 
said the boy, an iron certainty in his voice. Why not? The young boy stood very straight, his chin raised high and proud, and said, There is no justice in the laws of nature, headmaster. No term for fairness in the equations of motion. The universe is neither evil nor good. It simply does not care. The stars don't care, or the sun, or the sky. But they don't have to. We care. There is light in the world, and it is us. I wonder what will become of you, Harry, said the old wizard. His voice was soft, with a strange wonder and regret in it. It is enough to make me wish to live just to see it. The boy bowed to him with heavy irony and departed, and the oaken door slammed shut behind him with a thud. End Chapter 39 Chapter 40 Pretending to be Wise Part 2 Harry, holding his teacup in the exact correct way that Professor Quirrell had needed to demonstrate three times, took a small, careful sip. All the way across the long, white table that was the centerpiece of Mary's room, Professor Quirrell took a sip from his own cup, making it look far more natural and elegant. The tea itself was something whose name Harry couldn't even pronounce, or at least, every time Harry had tried to repeat the Chinese words, Professor Quirrell had corrected him until finally Harry had given up. Harry had maneuvered himself into getting a glimpse of the bill last time, and Professor Quirrell had let him get away with it. He'd felt an impulse to drink a Comed tea first. Even taking that into account, Harry had still been shocked out of his skin. And it still tasted to him like, well, tea. There was a quiet, nagging suspicion in Harry's mind that Professor Quirrell knew this, and was deliberately buying ridiculously expensive tea that Harry couldn't appreciate just to mess with him. Professor Quirrell himself might not like it all that much. Maybe nobody actually liked this tea, and the only point of it was to be ridiculously expensive and make the victim feel unappreciative. In fact, maybe it was really just ordinary tea, only you asked for it in a certain code, and they put a fake gigantic price on the bill. Professor Quirrell's expression was drawn and thoughtful. No, Professor Quirrell said. You should not have told the headmaster about your conversation with Lord Malfoy. Please try to think faster next time, Mr. Potter. I'm sorry, Professor Quirrell, Harry said meekly. I still don't see it. There were times when Harry felt very much like an imposter pretending to be cunning in Professor Quirrell's presence. Lord Malfoy is Albus Dumbledore's opponent, at least for this present time. All Britain is their chessboard, all wizards their pieces. Consider... Lord Malfoy threatened to throw away everything, abandon his game, to take vengeance on you if Mr. Malfoy was hurt. In which case, Mr. Potter... It took more long seconds for Harry to get it, but it was clear that Professor Quirrell wasn't going to give any more hints. Not that Harry wanted them. Then Harry's mind finally made the connection, and he frowned. Dumbledore kills Draco, makes it look like I did it, and Lucius sacrifices his game against Dumbledore to get at me? That doesn't seem like the headmaster's style, Professor Quirrell. Harry's mind flashed back to a similar warning from Draco, which had made Harry say the same thing. Professor Quirrell shrugged and sipped his tea. Harry sipped his own tea and sat in silence. The tablecloth spread over the table was in a very peaceful pattern, seeming at first like plain cloth, but if you stared at it long enough, or kept silent long enough, 
you started to see a faint tracery of flowers glimmering on it. The curtains of the room had changed their pattern to match, and seemed to shimmer as though in a silent breeze. Professor Curl was in a contemplative mood that Saturday, and so was Harry, and Mary's room, it seemed, had not neglected to notice this. Professor Quirrell, Harry said suddenly, is there an afterlife? Harry had chosen the question carefully, not, do you believe in an afterlife, but simply, is there an afterlife? What people really believed didn't seem to them like beliefs at all. People didn't say, I strongly believe in the sky being blue. They just said, the sky is blue. Your true inner map of the world just felt to you like the way the world was. The defense professor raised his cup to his lips again before answering. His face was thoughtful. If there is, Mr. Potter, then quite a few wizards have wasted a great deal of effort in their searches for immortality. That's not actually an answer, Harry observed. He'd learned by now to notice that sort of thing when talking to Professor Quirrell. Professor Quirrell sat down his teacup with a small, high-pitched tacking sound on his saucer. Some of those wizards were reasonably intelligent, Mr. Potter, so you may take it that the evidence of an afterlife is not obvious. I have looked into the matter myself. There have been many claims of the sort which hope and fear would be expected to produce. Among those reports whose veracity is not in doubt, there is nothing which could not be the result of mere wizardry. There are certain devices said to communicate with the dead, but these, I suspect, only project an image from the mind. The result seems indistinguishable from memory because it is memory. The alleged spirits tell no secrets they knew in life, nor could have learned after death, which are not known to the wielder. Which is why the Resurrection Stone is not the most valuable magical artifact in the world, said Harry. Precisely, though I wouldn't say no to a chance to try it. There was a dry, thin smile on his lips, and something colder, more distant, in his eyes. You spoke to Dumbledore of that as well, I take it? Harry nodded. The curtains were taking on a faintly blue pattern, and a dim tracery of elaborate snowflakes now seemed to be becoming visible on the tablecloth. Professor Krull's voice sounded very calm. The headmaster can be persuasive, Mr. Potter. I hope he has not persuaded you. Heck no! Didn't fool me for a second. I should hope not, said Professor Quirrell, still in that very calm tone. I would be extremely put out to discover that the headmaster had convinced you to throw away your life on some fool plot by telling you that death is the next great adventure. I don't think the headmaster believed it himself, actually, Harry said. He sipped his own tea again. He asked me what I could possibly do with eternity, gave me the usual line about it being boring, and he didn't seem to see any conflict between that and his own claim to have an immortal soul. In fact, he gave me a whole long lecture about how awful it was to want immortality before he claimed to have an immortal soul. I can't quite visualize what must have been going on inside his head, but I don't think he actually has a mental model of himself continuing forever in the afterlife. The temperature in the room seemed to be dropping. You perceive said a voice like ice from the other end of the table. That Dumbledore does not truly believe as he speaks. It is not that he has compromised his principles, it is that he never had them from the beginning. Are you becoming cynical yet, Mr. Potter? Harry had dropped his eyes to his teacup. A little, Harry said to his possibly ultra-high quality, perhaps ridiculously expensive, Chinese tea. I'm certainly becoming a bit frustrated with... 
whatever's going wrong in people's heads. Yes, said that icy voice. I find it frustrating as well. Is there any way to get people not to do that? Harry said into his teacup. There is indeed a certain useful spell which solves that problem. Harry looked up hopefully at that and saw a cold, cold smile on the defense professor's face. Then Harry got it. I mean, besides Avada Kedavra. The defense professor laughed. Harry didn't. Anyway, Harry said hastily, I did think fast enough not to suggest the obvious idea about the resurrection stone in front of Dumbledore. Have you ever seen a stone with a line inside a circle inside a triangle? The deathly chill seemed to draw back, fold into itself, as the ordinary Professor Quirrell returned. Not that I can recall, Professor Quirrell said after a while, a thoughtful frown on his face. That is the resurrection stone? Harry set aside his teacup, then drew on his saucer the symbol he had seen on the inside of his cloak. And before Harry could take out his own wand to cast the hover charm, the saucer went floating obligingly across the table toward Professor Quirrell. Harry really wanted to learn that wandless stuff, but that, apparently, was far above his current curriculum. Professor Quirrell studied Harry's tea saucer for a moment, then shook his head, and a moment later the saucer went floating back to Harry. Harry put his teacup back on the saucer, noting absently as he did so that the symbol he'd drawn had vanished. If you happen to see a stone with that symbol, and it does talk to the afterlife, do let me know. I have a few questions for Merlin, or anyone who is around in Atlantis. Quite, said Professor Quirrell. Then the defense professor lifted up his teacup again, and tipped it back as though to finish the last of what was there. By the way, Mr. Potter, I fear we shall have to cut short today's visit to Diagon Alley. I was hoping it would... never mind. Let it stand that there is something else I must do this afternoon. Harry nodded and finished his own tea, then rose from his seat at the same time as Professor Quirrell. One last question, Harry said, as Professor Quirrell's cloak lifted itself off the coat rack and went floating toward the defense professor. Magic is loose in the world, and I no longer trust my guesses so much as I once did. So in your own best guess, and without any wishful thinking, do you believe there's an afterlife? If I did, Mr. Potter, said Professor Quirrell as he shrugged on his coat. Would I still be here? End Chapter 40 Thank you to Drake Walker for providing the voice of Dumbledore. The original text for this chapter can be found at fanfiction.net or by googling Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, and there is also a link included in this file's description. To participate in this project, simply send in a reading of any minor character's lines at least three days before an episode airs. Recordings, questions, and comments can be sent to hpmorpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please help spread the word at your social forum of choice. If you're interested in learning more about the art of rationality, please visit lesswrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. The music used is Catch That Goblin by Skaven. Come back next week for Chapter 41, Frontal Override. <laughs>